passages of Scripture like we will be in today where man's sinful and wicked activity is contrasted to your righteousness and your holiness. When we understand and we have a clear picture of your goodness, your righteousness, your holiness, and your glory, then sinful behavior is seen for what it truly is as you see it. And that's what we want this morning, Father. We need eyes. We need fresh eyes again to see, to behold your beauty, to feel and be impressed upon us the weight of your glory that is yours, that you share with no one, and that you thoroughly enjoy. And in contrast to that, Lord, in contrast to beholding and seeing your beauty and your glory, we need to then also be able to see the wickedness and the depravity of what sin is and how, how you see it, and contrasting your very character. And so help us, Lord, today, because we live in a culture like the church in Rome did where wickedness and sin, sexual immorality, is not just practiced, it's not just spread, but it's celebrated and it's encouraged. And we as your people need your grace to be able to stand firm upon the truth, rejecting that which you reject, but also cultivating hearts of gratitude and thankfulness, because had it not been for your grace, we would still be in our own depravity and our own sin. And then to cultivate um, an, a wisdom and a compassion for those who are still living in their sin, that they might come to know Christ. So these are things, God, that we need your help in our lives because we just don't, we're just not like that. We don't think about these things as often as we should. So help us this morning, Father, as we look to you. We pray firstly that you would be honored and glorified. We pray secondly that your church would be built up and we would be helped and encouraged. And we pray that um, people might come to know you and enjoy you and worship you. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. <clears throat> We're going to be jumping back into Romans this morning, and Paul has um, two weeks, well, a couple weeks ago, Craig introduced us to really this long-running theme that Paul is embarking on through chapter 1, and it's go we're going to see eventually how it seamlessly overflows into chapter 2, and then really the rest of the book as, um, as we get a chance to take a look at it. But I think it's good for us to be reminded of what it is that we saw in verses 16 and 17 before we get into our passage today. So just a brief recap of what it is that we saw in verses 16 and 17. And then what it is that we looked at last week and what we'll be looking at this week. And I think it's really important for us to, again, park on 16 and 17 because it is in 16 and 17 that God makes very, very clear um, a, a propositional, a declarative statement regarding the righteousness of God. And he sets that up first as if to say, look, if you get this right and you get the righteousness of God, the holiness, the purity of God right, then when we begin to talk about all these sinful issues, um, it becomes clear as to why they are as bad as they are. But if the glory of God and His holiness and His righteousness is not really enjoyed, it's not really seen very clearly, it's not appreciated, it's not worshipped, and we minimize His glory, then sinful behavior just really doesn't seem that bad. 
So we have, to, we have to keep that distinction. We have to work hard in that so that when he talks about sinful behavior like he's talking about today, it becomes, we see it for what it truly is in the way that God sees it. One of the things that we talked about in Sunday school this morning is that um, to be able to rightly define and understand the topic of justice and love, which we were talking about this morning in Sunday school, you have to first understand justice and love from a biblical, from a God word perspective. If you get that right, then you can see all the unjust forms and definitions of justice and love and things like that. So we have to first get God right in all things. And so Paul would say in 16 and 17, he's not ashamed of the gospel because in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed. And then we saw last week how then the wrath of God is being revealed. Paul's uh, mission and his desire to preach the gospel is so that God's righteousness may be revealed because also God's wrath is being revealed. These two things are being revealed. His righteousness through the gospel and his wrath through general creation, natural revelation. But man has made a decision. They've exchanged the glory of God, which can be seen, namely his eternal power and his divine nature have been exchanged for a lesser glory. And in today's passage, we get into what is it that happens when you make this exchange of glory? In essence, the question is, um, when we commit the sin and the problem of idolatry, what's the natural overflow and outcome of that? The problem, as we get into our text today, Paul is going to address the issue of homosexuality. But he is first wanting us to understand that homosexuality is first a worship problem. The real problem, the main problem, is idolatry. When you exchange the glory of God for another glory, sinful, immoral behavior is the natural overflow of that exchange. And so in this today, he's going to hit on specifically the, the natural overflow of homosexuality, sexual morality. And then next week, he'll get into some more um, broad topics. But all of them are the issue of idolatry. When you exchange the glory of God in for something else, your behavior will follow suit. And the ultimate thing to go, which he's going to highlight for us today, is, is sexual identity and morality and the practice of something that is very much a core part of how God made us as human beings in his image. And we want to, we'll, we'll get into that a little bit more. So, um, Paul, again, I think it's helpful for us to remember he's addressing a church. He's addressing fellow Christians that are living in Rome. And Rome is a very, like at that point in time, though Roman culture is on the decline, for many, many years, Rome had been the peak of human culture and society on the known world pretty much at that time. And it is overflowing and rampant with pagan philosophy, pagan religion, and sexual immorality. And homosexuality is a common practice in their culture, and that's part of the reason why he addresses it very clearly and specifically. He's trying to get the church in Rome to think rightly about these things because they're surrounded by them. And we know that when we are immersed in a particular culture, unless you're actively rightly defining things biblically, those things come creeping in and seeping into the church. And part of the job of the elders is to protect the church from bad doctrine. 
And there's a lot of bad doctrine out there regarding sexual identity, sexual morality, and specifically the issue of homosexuality. So in many ways, um, this is very helpful and timely and practical for us as well. Um, how do we survive in a, in a culture that is celebrating these things, practicing these things, be firm on the Word of God and the truth of it, cultivate purity and holiness ourselves while we, re, while we reject the unholiness of the world, but yet still, as we will see in the book of Romans, be called to go out and to reach the lost world. It's a really fine balance to go, I reject what you're doing because God rejects it, but I want to see you come to know Christ. Versus I reject what you're doing because God rejects it and, you know, we're, we're, there's some sort of war and animosity. Like, I want to see your death and your destruction and your downfall. We still want to see people come to know Christ even though the wrath of God is being revealed against them. And so we, these are all these, these things going on that we want to keep in mind. I think that's helpful for us as we read our text this morning. So let's read Romans chapter 1, verses 24 through 27, and then we want to work our way through it. And I want to spend a little bit of time at the end of the sermon specifically talking about helping us think through how we can apply these things um, specifically for us. So Romans chapter 1, beginning in verse 24 through verse 27. Therefore, God gave them up to the lusts of their hearts, to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the Creator who is blessed forever. Amen. For this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions, for their women exchanged natural relations for those that were contrary to nature, and the men likewise gave up natural relations for women and were consumed with passion for one another, men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. So we, we look at this as, again, as, I, as we approach this topic, we look at this as the title of the sermon is The Weight of Glory, Part 2. There's, there's been an exchange of the glory of God that we have to understand. That's why he begins verse 24 with the therefore, because they have made this exchange. His, his argument from today is a natural overflow of what it is that we talked about last week. The wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men um, who, who in their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them for his invisible attributes. This is what God has shown through creation. Specifically, his eternal power and his divine nature have been clearly perceived. But then we see in verse 23, they made this exchange. They exchanged the glory of the immortal God. For images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things, therefore, because they made this exchange, this is what is happening. God gave them up. We have to understand that the wrath of God is being revealed, but in the wrath of God being revealed and displayed, God is giving people up to what it is that they want. They have these lusts. They have these desires. They made this exchange for the glory of God. When you make the exchange of the glory of God and you are now basically um, committing idolatry, you're worshiping something else other than God, your desires and your passions that exist within you internally begin to go astray. 
And God, in his wrath, gives people over to those desires that they have because they've exchanged his glory for something else. And if you understand anything about how God feels about his own glory, he takes it very seriously. And when you exchange the glory of God for lesser glory, he gives people up to the desires, the natural lustful desires that they have within. Paul would again say something very similar in the book of Ephesians. He says in Ephesians chapter 4, verses 17 through 19, pretty much in three verses what he takes an entire chapter in Romans 1 to say. But if you're looking for a passage that, is, that parallels what we're talking about, you would see that in Ephesians 4, 17, 18, and 19, which Paul would write to the church in Ephesus. Now this I say and testify in the Lord that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. They are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to their hardness of heart. They have become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, greed, and to practice every kind of impurity. There's a giving up that God does because they made this exchange, but mankind also gives themselves up to their, their, their passions and the desires, their sinful passions and desires that they have, and they pursue these things. And so God gives them up. He hands them over to that. Um, what's interesting is that this phrase, God gave them up, which is important because he uses it in verse 24. We'll see it again today in verse 26, and then we'll see it again next week in verse 28. Three times in the latter part of this letter of chapter 1, he would repeat and make very, very clear, God is giving them up to their passions. And very often in the New Testament, this phrase, God gives them up, um, is used to indicate being handed over um, it's the idea of going into custody, going to, into prison for trial and punishment. You see that throughout the Gospels all the time. This phrase of getting handed overs, always, I mean, almost always used with the idea of being handed over to um, being put into prison or being taken into custody. And so he's communicating that these people are being handed over to be imprisoned by their own passions by their own desires. They are getting what it is that they want. And that makes it clear when he says that he has given them over, in verse 24, in the lusts of their hearts, indicating where the problem is coming from. It's coming from within to impurity and to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, which he gets into the specifics of what that is. But it's the immoral impurity and the shameful conduct between two people that involves physical and bodily contact. This is what he says here in verse 24, and then he'll get into the specifics of what that looks like in verse 26. God is giving them up to the lusts of their hearts, to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves. They are now doing, you see the progression? You exchange the glory of God. You now have these wayward passions and idols, and it carries itself out in bodily action. They made this exchange. God gives them over to be imprisoned to their own lustful ideas and thoughts and desires, and now they begin to act it out among one another in, a, in action with each other, in the defiling 
of their bodies. And again, verse 25 tells us why. Because, to make it very, very clear, let me go back and remind you what I said in verse 23. Because they exchanged the truth about God. They've exchanged the truth about God. What's the truth about God? Well, it's what he mentioned in verse 18, right? People who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. What is the truth that he specifically will go on to mention? Namely, verse 20, God's invisible attributes, his eternal power and his divine nature that have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world. The truth about God's eternal power and his divine nature have been exchanged. And so he'll go on and he'll say in verse 25, they exchanged this truth. They exchanged the truth about God, namely that he is eternal in power, that he is divine in nature, for a lie. Now, who is the ultimate liar that we know of in Scripture? John 8, 44, Jesus would teach his people, your, your father is the devil. He is a murderer and a liar from the beginning, and he is the father of lies. So, so, so he is, Paul is saying that this is spiritual activity and conduct that is going on. You have spiritually exchanged the glory of God for a lesser glory because you have believed the lie from the enemy that this lesser glory is better and more satisfying. And then your lust and your internal desires go right along with it, and then you begin to do what it is that you feel like doing. I mean, we experience this every day, but maybe on a smaller scale. What am I going to do today? Well, I don't know. What do I feel like doing today? And so often, the decisions that we make are dictated and determined by how I feel at any given moment. And if you live your life based upon your feelings, and you are a Christian, you will oftentimes find yourself in a world of trouble. Are we going to make decisions and live based upon our feelings, or are we going to make it based upon what the Word of God says and choose to trust in Him. Every act of obedience according to the Word of God is a display of faith and trust that God knows best. So they have exchanged the glory of God for a lesser glory. Um, They have the truth about God for a lie. And then we see the overflow of this. They exchanged the truth of God about God for a lie and worshipped and served the creature rather than the creator. See, this is not just about, oh, I prefer this thing over God. The issue is that they've made an exchange of the glory of God, and when you make that exchange, worship ensues. You will always, I mean, not even the fall could ruin the fact that we are worshipers by nature. I mean, every single human being is still a worshiper. Not even the fall completely stripped us of the capacity for worship. Oh, we are worshipers. The problem is that because of the fall, we seek to worship other things. See, the lie that Satan presented was not don't be a worshiper. It's worship something else. Worship anything else other than God. And so we still are worshipers. It's just now because of the fall, we have the inability to truly worship God. Not only the inability, but the desire. No one seeks after God. No, not one. We'll get into that in Romans 3. And, and, and the radical impact that sin had upon our nature. Now we are totally depraved. But that we are still worshipers. 
And when you exchange the glory of God for a lesser glory, you will, you will worship. And the idea of worship comes from the word worth-ship. It's whatever you ascribe worth to. It's whatever you hold as being valuable. It's what it, really at the heart of worship, it's, being, it's revering something. It's being in awe of something. And, they have, and, and, and sinful man has taken the reverence and the awe and the worth and the value that belongs to the immortal, incomparable, incorruptible God. They've made that exchange. They've exchanged it for something else. And now they are, they are worshiping, they are revering and awing something else other than God. And it's because they have believed a lie. And when you then worship something, the overflow of that is that you will then serve whatever you worship. And so Paul makes this natural progression very, very clear in 25. They've exchanged the truth of God for a lie. When you do that, you worship that thing, and then you serve that thing. That thing becomes your functional God. Worship and service, they go hand in glove. Whatever you revere, whatever you worship, you serve that thing. You pay homage to that thing. That's just, it's part of the human DNA. And he says very specifically that they've done that with the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. And I think that I really love this, this phrase that Paul includes in verse 25, right? I mean, it's it's like he's talking about the things that they have done, the radical impact of the depravity, the sin in their life. God has given them over to the lust of their hearts, to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves because they exchanged the truth of God about a lie. When you do that, you worship that thing. And when you do that, you serve that thing, which is the creature rather than the creator. But oh, don't forget, the creator is blessed forever. Amen. As if, to remind, just as if to put in there a clear reminder, don't you ever forget that God, see, God ceases to be blessed, God ceases to be immortal, God ceases to be incorruptible just because you are not giving him glory. Just because you exchanged his glory for something else doesn't mean that he is still not glorious. His glory is eternal. It's unchanging. He is forever 100% pure actuality and glory. He is always emanating all of himself all the time in the fullness of his refulgence and glory and splendor and majesty. And when people make the exchange of that for something else, it's not as if God ceases to be that. God is not the one that is hindered by the exchange. We are. God is blessed forever. And then there's this amen, like may it be so. Just remember, church, you live in this culture where people have made these ex this exchange, and he's going to get very specific into one of those exchanges in the next verse here. But don't forget, do not take your eyes off of the blessed God who is eternal and unchanging in his glory forever. I mean, that is the only way that the believer can continue to live a life 
of, of, of purity and holiness and righteousness and pursuit of God and obedience to him. I mean, there's just like a million other paths that are presented to us every single day that either look more attractive or look easier to us. And we're so often inclined to think, well, maybe, maybe I'm just going to take like 10 steps back down this path that looks a little easy. And if, it, and if it doesn't look good after that, or if something goes wrong, okay, well, then I'll backtrack and I'll get back on the narrow path. That's just like, it's just, it's ridiculous to think that that's, we have that much like objectivity. Things continue to look better. Things continue to look easier. We continue to go down that path. And pretty soon, you're like, where's the glory of God? If he, you know, like when he pricks you to even open up your eyes and look up, and you've completely lost it. This is why the believer has to, this is why I say last week, said last week, and I will continue to say it again, the best thing that the believer can do is fight for and to maintain a clear biblical vision of the glory of God in their life. You will find it to be incredibly practical in the decisions that you make every single day. It will keep you from exchanging his glory for a lesser glory. It will keep you being able to say, God is blessed forever, amen. And so then we see in verse 26 and 27, for this reason, because the exchange, God gave them up again to dishonorable passions. And then we see what it is that he alluded to in verse 24, in verse 26 and 27, spoken of very clearly. Women exchange natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. The men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another, men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. And he specifically addresses the issue of homosexuality. Women giving up and exchanging the glory of God and becoming bodily, sexually active with one another, and men likewise doing the same thing and committing the same acts. And he again reminds us that God gave them up. He specifically mentions what God gave them up from doing, that which is natural. You notice that? He says in there that which is, uh, they gave up natural relations and that which is contrary to nature. I think this is helpful for us um, and I imagine that we're going to be talking quite a bit about this topic in our next Sunday School lesson as we get into what is man and anthrop biblical anthropology. But I think it's helpful for us to revisit this idea here. Genesis chapter 1, verses 26, 27, and 28. If you want to turn there, um, this, is what is, this is what the Bible says is natural. All right, so he has said God has given them up from doing what is natural. They're doing what is unnatural to them, right? What's natural? Genesis 1, 26, 27, and 28. And again, these are passages that we know well, but listen again and think about it in the context of what we're talking about. Beginning in Genesis 1, 26, then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness. Right, so God's creating man in his image. And then we're going to see, we'll be created in the image of God, what comes natural for man to do being created in the image of God. This is important. 
make, just keep, put in the back of your mind real quick here, okay, we're talking about being created in God's image. What comes natural from being created in the image of God? And let them, this is where he starts, this is what's natural. Let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created them male and female. He created them. And God blessed them and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and, and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. So Genesis 1.28 has been labeled the creation mandate. This is what is normal and natural for mankind to do, male and female being created in the image of God. Now, what's happening in homosexual relationships is that they're doing what is unnatural. They're doing what they were not originally created to do. This is what's normal. Homosexuality is what is abnormal. Which means that if this is what is normal and it's created in the image of God, then when people practice homosexuality, they are not properly imaging the God that created them. This is like the ultimate expression of, of, not to, of really not imaging the God that created us. And then think about it. You can't do, in homosexual relationships, you cannot do what Genesis 1.28 tells us to do. You can't be fruitful and you can't multiply. Like biology 101, right? Like two guys can't make a baby. And two women don't make a baby. You, you, can't, you can't even begin to do what you were created in the image of God to, to basically do. The basic function of human life is not able to be done. And so he will say, you cannot be fruitful and multiply, and you can't fill and subdue the earth and have dominion over the fish of the sea. It's not just that you can't be fruitful and multiply. You can't practice dominion because practicing dominion is a male-female endeavor together. It's not, it's not just having to do with sexuality. It has to do with companionship. It has to do with proper roles. It has to do with what God created man and woman to do with one another. And when, when you're given over to that which is unnatural, you can't do that which is natural, which God has created mankind to do. God creates them male and female in his image. He creates them male and female to do, Genesis 1.28. Homosexuality makes that impossible and prevents them from being able to fruitful and, and multiply. And, and David write, would write in Psalm 8, verses 5 through 8, he puts it in terms like this. Talking about mankind, you have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honor. You have given him dominion over the works of your hands and put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen and also the beasts of the field and birds of the heavens and the fish of the sea, whatever passes along the sea. Homosexuality is the expression. If mankind has been crowned with glory and honor to practice dominion, the Genesis 128 mandate, then homosexuality is the ultimate act of taking the crown off, rejecting it and throwing it on the ground as an expression of rebellion against the one who created them to do this thing. We were created as under kings, under the great king, to practice 
dominion to be fruitful and multiply, and you can't do that in a homosexual relationship. And so then Paul would go on to say in verse 27, at the end, therefore, they are receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. And that he's referring to um, being handed over to their lusts. The handing, being handed over to their lusts is the penalty for their error. And what's the, again, what's the error that they have committed? Idolatry. Exchanging the glory of God for a lesser glory. Worshiping and serving something else. Going along with their internal desires, their sinful desires and feelings. And God giving them up to that. And that's the penalty that they receive. This is an expression of God's wrath that's being revealed. And he'll go on later on in verse 31 and, uh, 30, 31 and 32, which we'll get to next week, as other forms of sinful behavior. But he hones in specifically on this one first because it has to do with the very core of who we are as being created in the image of God. What does it mean to be a human? Male and female is where it starts, fundamentally. And so obviously there are all kinds of implications of this towards not just homosexuality, but transgenderism and, and all of that stuff that's just widely accepted, celebrated in our culture. It's, you're, you're messing with like the core of what it means to be a human being created in God's image. And then you, when you do that, you can't do what God has essentially created us to do. And, it's, um, and then from there, people are being given over because this is the desire that they have because they have exchanged God's glory for a lesser glory. So I think about this. I want to think about this in a couple ways, um, specifically and practically for us. The church in Rome is living in a culture that is steeped in this exchange, we, in the same way, are living in a culture that's very similar, steeped in this exchange that has happened. Um, not only is the exchange commonplace, but again, it's celebrated. And everybody has to celebrate it as well. Or there's repercussions. Um, I think about how the church might respond to a message like this. I think that there have been very poor examples of how the church responds to this passage throughout history. Um, I think there have been very good examples of how the church responds to issues like this in church history, and I think that that's what we're encouraged to think through today. A couple things that I want us to consider what is the encouragement for the church in Rome? What's the encouragement for us? Firstly, I would like for us to consider how um, we might grow in our own purity and holiness first. Rome is swimming in a culture of sinful pleasure, but in contrast to this, the church must remain, remain pure and holy collectively as a group, but personally as well. 
not just in this area, but in other areas. Um, I praise the Lord for the people that I've been able to spend time and counsel with that have come to me and confessed that they struggle with same-sex attraction. You know that this is a common struggle among mankind. You know, in a group this size, there are probably um, at least a handful of people that struggle with same-sex attraction. And um, they would say that it's not a struggle that they want. It's not a struggle that they desire. They are born-again believers in Christ, but this is part of their fallen, sinful nature. And we need to remember that the goal of ministering to people that struggle with same-sex attraction is not to get them to be attracted to the opposite sex. The goal is to get them to pursue holiness and purity in their own lives. What God calls us to, regardless of what your sin struggle is, whether it's same-sex attraction, whether it's anger, whether it's adultery, I mean, it's incredible, right? Like, sexual morality is wrong in the eyes of God, but um, we don't, you know, any form of sexual immorality is not right in the eyes of the Lord. And so um, we minister to them and, and, and encourage them to pursue holiness and purity in the eyes of the Lord. I think of what Paul, I think a wonderful passage to use to minister to people like, uh, well, to anybody who's struggling with sin, but, you know, Paul would say in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 9 through 11, do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, immoral nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God, and such were some of you. But you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. We remind people that um, such were some of us, and that save for the grace of God, I'd still be in the same pit in gutter of depravity that I was swimming in prior to coming to knowing Christ, and so would you. And so we look to the same God together with this word, this is how we were, but such were some of us as well, but we were washed. This is what God does. He takes people who, who struggle with sins, people who are depraved, people who are blind, people who are not searching for him. Then he brings them out of the pit and he washes them and he sanctifies them, sets them apart and justifies them, not because of their own goodness or not because of their own merits or moral improvement, but in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God, based upon the completed and the finished work of Christ. He has paid the debt. And so we remind one another, we remind each other that the goal is holiness, that the goal is purity. We remind what it is that Christ has done for us. Practically as well, I think 
What Paul will say later on in Romans chapter 12 is very helpful and fitting for us as well. You think about, he, 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 he labors away at these, on these issues early on in chapter 1, and then when he gets to the more practical theology, if you will, in chapter 12, what are the marks of a true Christian that he begins to speak of in chapter 12, beginning in verse 9? And so think of this. Think about how the church in Rome is to apply this, knowing what they know about what God has thinks about sexual morality and homosexuality and the culture that they live in. And his admonishment to them is, let love be genuine, abhor what is evil, hold fast to what is good, love one another with brotherly affection, outdo one another in showing honor. Do not be slothful in zeal, be fervent in spirit, serve the Lord, rejoice in hope, be patient in tribulation, be constant in prayer. Contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For by so doing, you will heap a burning coal on his head. Do not be overcome with evil, but overcome evil with good. How does a believer respond to living in a pagan culture immersed in sexual depravity and all other kinds of depravity? Well, you just heard a lot of different ways to do so. And a lot of it is how the, how the church lifts and supports and builds up the church and the way that we then treat those outside of the church. Never taking vengeance into our own hands, but leaving it and trusting it to God instead. How do, you, how do you reach those who struggle with homosexuality? Well, how do you reach any non-believer with the gospel? It's not as if like there's there a, you know, a special category and we have to come up with some you know, special types of church programs for deprogramming people. How do you reach them? You reach them with the good news of the gospel, who Jesus Christ is and what he has come to do. Because the, the work that he has done for your sin, he has done for all of those who would come to him by faith. And so it informs the way that we, we pursue purity and holiness in our own lives. It, it, it informs the way that we live practically, as we saw in Romans chapter 12. It reminds us of our evangelistic call and the power of God to reach those who don't know Christ. And it also informs the way that we worship, as we already talked about. God is blessed forever. Amen. We keep our eyes fixed upon Him and His glory. And when we do that, we're in a good position to be able to tell the one that we're, tell others of the one that we are beholding. Come, taste and see that the Lord is good. Fix your eyes upon his wonderful face, and the things of this earth will grow strangely dim 
and the light of his glory and grace. How does this world, how does my own sinful lust and depravity go strangely dim for me when the glory of God is once again placed before me and I behold him in all of his glory and majesty and goodness and kindness towards me and towards the sinner? So that we're going to partake of communion together now. And I think that this is a wonderful opportunity for us to be reminded of the loving kindness and the grace of God that he has shown to us in our lives. We reject what God rejects. We embrace and call good what God calls good. And we would still be in the camp of the rejected had it not been for the work of Christ and the regenerating work of the Spirit of God in our lives. And so as we partake of communion together, this is a time for those who know Christ to rejoice, to celebrate in what he's done for us, for us to examine and to consider our own lustful thoughts and desires and passions and ways that we have been living consistently with those rather than with the glory of God and his word, and to come to him in confession of those things and find that he is faithful and just to forgive us and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So this is a time for believers, those who know Christ. If you're visiting today and you know Christ by faith and by faith alone, then we, we invite you to partake this, this meal together with us. But if you don't know Christ, consider your position before him and consider the invitation that he extends to come to him by faith and by faith alone and to receive the forgiveness of sins. Be washed and sanctified and justified as we read already this morning. So the elements are on the, back of the tables behind you and you can get those and return back to your seat.